It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. So when you have a series called Daring to Do as Stanley Dale, uh, it's important. Uh, I mean, this is sort of this momentous, uh, climactic message in the series. Technically, according to my map, I have one more session left on Monday. Okay, and yet this is sort of the climax. You know that uh, you know once you reach the climax in a in a movie, then you sort of uh, either iris out to the end, or you have some kind of finale at the end. It's just you know feel good finale. You know that's sort of what I've been saving. Uh, you know because this is this is a rough journey when you're trying to reach these head-hunting cannibal tribes, uh, and there's so much demonic activity, it can be dark at times, you know, as you're navigating through this. And so we've been going through, I mean, roughly uh, 30 years of history, and using Stanley Dale not necessarily as a specific study, but more as a general symbol, that his life marks something. He's a very imperfect character, which I didn't spend a lot of time focused on, focusing on his weaknesses. Some Christians love it when you focus on heroes' weaknesses. It just makes you feel really good. It's like, oh, it's good to know that other people struggle with that too. And I haven't spent a lot of time on that. He was uh, a difficult guy to work with. He was very serious and very stern and very militaristic in his manner, and that wasn't very attractive <laughs> to certain people. But he, he's a guy that would just get the job done. Very disciplined. You know, just, he was like 5'7 and just made of stone. Uh, the guy is something special. When you study him, as a man studying him, you're like, oh, wow, okay, I, I like this guy. And, uh, but I can understand, too, uh, personality-wise, why he wouldn't be the most attractive. I'm attracted to him. And uh, I, I, I greatly appreciate his life. And so in this message, we're going to talk about his death. And his death is possibly, if you've ever read Lords of the Earth, it's possibly, it's arguably the most significant part of the storyline. But when I say arguably, that means there's a lot of other parts that are very significant in how he is going to make decisions and how he is going to live his life. But it's like, it's almost like you can feel it when you read the book that he's, that we're being set up to truly see the importance of his death. And so the name of this one I know it doesn't seem very creative, you know, when you have a series called Daring to Do as Stanley Dale, and then I named this message Daring to Die as Stanley Dale. And yet, the idea that is packaged within this, I actually believe can change our lives as believers today. Fear has had a good run in our culture, and I think it's high time that we stomp it out. And, you know, one of the greatest fears to most people on earth, even though I, I, I've heard people say that public speaking is the number one fear, and I'm like, you know, I just have a tough time believing that that's a greater fear than the pains of death. And typically, like, the pains of death are right there, like number two, and public speaking, number one. I think those are public speaking coaches that come up with those statistics just to say, and here, I'm going to help you right now. And I do believe that uh, public speaking is a very bona fide uh, fear and, and trepidation. It's like the worst thing that could happen to someone. But I, I think most of us, if it came down to, I will cut off your arm slowly, or you can get up and speak in front of this group. I think most of us would speak in front of the group. Okay, that's just my hunch. Uh, but what we're going to see is we're going to see a man face what I would probably call the greatest fear. 
And he is going to face it so differently than most of us would ever dream of someone facing it. And it startles the soul in what I would say is the most uh, beautiful way. And so let's enter this message just with a sense of expectancy that all of this that we're building has value, has meaning, that we are not on a, a journey for no purpose, but when we're going through a series like this, that God is taking us somewhere and desiring to land our feet solidly so that we too could do as a Stanley Dale did. We too could do as a Don Richardson did, as a Carol Richardson did, as a Pat Dale did, as a uh, Darlene Dibler, Russell Dibler did, as an Ernie Prescott did. In other words, that we could, like them, actually stand firm in, these hour, in this hour of need and truly reveal the glory of God. So part 22, Daring to Die as Stanley Dale. Eric Ludy and his unique, in this unique topic. So this topic, which I, it's not really a message on martyrdom. It's more a message on uh, death. But, and I, it's not that I have a fascination with death. You know, there's people that have a fascination with death where they're wearing, you know, skulls and black clothing all the time. And I do not have that, okay? I do not have a, have a fascination with death. I do not want to tinker with death you know, talk to death. I have no interest in death at all. It's merely a doorway as far as I'm concerned, but it is a very real topic and it's a very real moment in life that we all sort of stare at. It's there and we can't avoid it. It's just sort of standing in front of us all. And so as a result, from a very young age in my Christian development, so when I'm in my young 20s, I begin to process through this. I begin to pick up books like Fox's Book of Martyrs and Martyr's Mirror and it's just the, the, the idea of martyrdom is, is very significant to my development as a Christian. So when you start out your Christian life in pursuit of Jesus by reading Fox's Book of Martyrs, it sets a different pattern and course for your spiritual life and your expectation of what's going to happen. And I, I know this sounds strange, and maybe you would even call it morbid, but when I was somewhere around 21 I felt like I had a clear sense I was going to die a martyr. Okay, now that, I don't really bring that up very often, but, and it's not like I'm trying to prosper that notion and, you know, go after it. It's just, I have the clear sense. And, you know, when you have that sense, it actually makes it easier to be bold because you don't fear it anymore. It's like, well, I, I want to avoid that. As if it's some bad territory and you want to go around it. It's just like, no, God, I, I say yes to it. Even though I feel too weak for it in my natural man, that if I was ever brought to that point, I measure myself, I'm like, well, I don't have what it takes, but I know he does. And since the secret of martyrdom is not what you find in your own pockets, it's what you find in him, that he gives grace for help in time of need, then you can actually say, okay, Lord, yes, build me for such a day. So I was asked to speak. It was possibly the first time I ever spoke in front of a church. In fact, I, I think I'm going to say it was the first time I ever spoke in front of a church. It was in Spokane, Washington. We were traveling out there. I don't remember what the reason was. Uh, and, you know, I know what it was. We were speaking. We were giving our, our relationships message. And this was the first Sunday morning service I'd ever given. So I'd spoken in churches, but I'd never been given uh, the platform on a Sunday morning. And so I felt a little pressure, you know, this significant moment in my life where it's my first sermon. And, you know, the topic I chose was martyrdom. 
which is just classic Eric. You know, you get the young Eric is sort of like the older Eric. You know, I like to pick the most difficult topic and then just shock the audience with the fact that I'm going there. I'm going there right now. And I remember this lady came up to me afterwards and because I was so bold. It's like, let's die for Jesus. And this lady came up to me and said, I, I sense that Satan wants to sift you like wheat. That's what she said. You know, oh, I remember what, what else she said. She said, I think he wants to steal your joy. It's like, I don't know how that helps. Thank you, lady. Uh, I mean, I, I really appreciate your, your, your sensitivity to the Holy Spirit here. Uh, and what I said was very bold and brash. And I said, well, he can't get it. That was what I said. So I still remember this because this is a very defining moment in my life where I'm standing up for the first time, boldly proclaiming something, not truly understanding spiritual battle at all. Okay, I didn't understand what I was picking a fight with. And I didn't understand how when you get attacked, if you try and respond back with your own brashness, it's like, oh, you will not take me. If you try with your own John Wayne-ness to stand against the devil, you're done for. You'll be dinner tonight. I didn't know that. And so I was dinner that night. Let's just put it that way. I went through a season in my life where my joy was stolen from me. And I became very serious, and I was really struggling just to see straight. I had such an oppression against my life. And I, I mark it back to that time, this lady that came up to me, is, and I wasn't prepared. It's sort of like Peter. It's like, I will die for you tonight. I will die with you tonight. Peter, you will deny me three times before the cock crows. It's like, what? And Eric... You're not fit to actually represent me the way you think you are. You need to learn something. You need to understand how to live in the power of Christ, not in the power of your own bravado. And so as a result, I had to walk through something which was very, very important for my soul. And it's very, very important even as I approach a topic like this. Human bravado has nothing to do with what we're talking about. To face death with human bravado, a lot of guys have tried that. It's just like, I will not fear death. And then when it comes to death, they start to tremble. And they start to melt down because death is greater than them, just like a wolf pack is greater than sheep. However, when th those sheep have a shepherd, they can face a wolf pack. And when you, as that soldier approaching death, when you know that you have the captain of salvation standing there with you with his hand on your shoulder saying, fear it not you have something that the rest of the world does not have. And you can face death in a way that no one else can. You're a Christian. So greeting death as a man. Applying Yoda wisdom. So uh, I, am not tr I don't usually speak about any pop culture items, you know, so definitely bringing up Yoda. Now, if you're seeing this uh, via video, you see that it's an, an, an acronym, you know, Y-O-D-A. And it's pretty funny. It's like a little Eric humor thrown in here. But there is, and I'm going to hold it back. I'm not going to tell you what the Yoda wisdom is until the very end of this message. It's a classic speaking technique, okay? But it is, it is really good, okay? And if you're going to greet death as a man, there's a way to do it. And, you know, when Paul is speaking to the church at Corinth, he says, andridzomai, that's the Greek word, but it's, it's basically be manful, quit ye like men, be strong. So when you face even the greatest terrors, even the greatest griefs, even the greatest challenges, quit you like a man. And so even the ladies in here, it's like, what? How am I supposed to do that? I'm a woman. 
And yet there's a way that a man faces death. Well, and let me capitalize the M on man, and that might help you. Quit you like the man when you face death. See, Jesus has gone before us. He has prepared a way. If you want to face death, climb inside of the man and face death as that man, in that man, with the power of that man. And there you have a secret. So I'm not going to tell you what the Yoda wisdom is. Again, an anacronym. Okay, I'm not trying to get you to think of little green guys. Uh, even though I was, I, I'm not, right? All right, so this is from Fox's Book of Martyrs, The Martyrdom of James the Great. As James was led to the place of martyrdom, his accuser was brought to repent of his conduct by the apostle's extraordinary courage and undauntedness and fell down at his feet to request his pardon, professing himself a Christian and resolving that James should not receive the crown of martyrdom alone. Hence, they were both beheaded at the same time. Thus did the first apostolic martyr cheerfully and resolutely receive that cup which he had told our Savior he was ready to drink." Woo, okay, we're starting out the martyrdoms of all of the disciples, all the apostles now, right? So James is betrayed by a man. This man, in seeing James's extraordinary courage and undauntedness, that he is not moved by the fact that he's about to be beheaded, but he's cheerful. I mean, what is that? This man is broken to pieces internally and recognizes, I have done a great sin. And so he repents himself, believes in Jesus, and then joins James in dying. Okay, that is a great power of persuasion right there. And where was the power of persuasion? It's in how James approached death. James's very approach towards death actually brought a convincing statement to the onlooker, who was at this point in time an enemy of James, willing to sacrifice James for his own gain. And this man is going to be changed because, not of something James said, but James is bearing in how he approached his death. That is remarkable to see, and that's something that I don't think many of us understand because we don't live in a culture where we approach death in the normal sense where everyone's watching. And so as a result, we don't totally relate to what this man was seeing. But we would recognize that if we were heading towards, you know, being beheaded, uh, that you could just imagine some of the way you might behave. Hey, hey, I'm innocent. Hey, guys, where's my lawyer? Hey, come on, you're, I'm an American. I have rights. We have all sorts of different reactions we could have. And yet how many of us would be defined as having extraordinary courage? and that we would be marked by cheerfulness. Oh boy, do I want that. So this is a, a little clip from a, a book by G.A. Hinty called By Conduct and Courage. And this statement, of course it's underlined on the screen, no peeking guys, uh, but this statement stood out to me in such a way where I was thinking, huh. So this ship is crashed, it's crashing against the rocks and there's these uh, cannibals that have their fires on the beaches that are sort of uh, ready. I, I might be mixing two stories up. I think I'm thinking of Hudson Taylor's crash. And this one, I don't know if it had the headhunters and the fires. I think it may have just had the jagged rocks. So sorry, guys. That's a good story, too, by the way, if you want to read about Hudson Taylor. My lads, the captain shouted, everything has been done for the ship that could be done, but as you see for yourselves, our efforts have been in vain. 
I trust that you will all get ashore, but as far as we can see at present, the rocks are almost precipitous. And high as they are, the spray flies right over them. I thank you all for your good conduct while the ship has been in commission, and I'm sure that you will know how to die. And will preserve your calm and courage till the end. Go to your stations and remain there until she is about to strike. Then each man must make the best fight for life that he can. It's like, just calm, just composed. Yes, we're all about to die, but I'm, I trust that you as men know how to die well. Now, I don't know that I have the confidence that I could say that to the church today. And guys, I know that as you're about to approach death, that you all know how to die well, so be of good cheer and go do it. I don't know that I have the same confidence that the church today knows how to die well. And this is a message about how to die well. Sometimes we just have to see it. We have to witness it, just like James, the apostolic martyr who is going to have extraordinary courage and undauntedness and be cheerful as he approaches. Once you see it, you understand how to die well. It's like, okay, I've officially seen the pattern. If all you ever see is people screaming, yelling, and fearful, that doesn't help you understand how to die well. The attitude of triumph. You guys ready for this? Philippians 1.21, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So I'm going to highlight one little part of that, which is <clears throat> not the most logical thing to us. To die is gain. To die is advantageous. To die is better. <laughs> this is an attitude. Now, Paul knows that as long as he stays here, in fact, he, he knows he needs to stay here in this body a little longer at certain points of his juncture, of his life, and that he recognizes that for the saints, he needs to be here, that he has a job to do. But wow, if he could die, it would be really good. And see, the Christian does not fear death, but anticipates and the greatest restraint we need to have as believers is not to try and progress our life to its end too quickly, but to actually savor this life to its fullest so that we maximize the impact that God designed us to have while we were here. And yet every one of us as believers wants God to push the fast forward button. It's like, God, could you, could you fast forward this? Now, see, many of us get caught into the treasures of this world, and there are many, and they're good, and they're not even evil, they're not immoral. But things like marriage, that's all I need. I could just stop right there. Okay, for many of you in here that are not married, I know the discussion, I've had it many times, I had it many times with God before uh, I got married. And that was, Lord, I'm really excited for you to return. Really excited. But could you just like hold off just a little longer until I can just see, taste for myself what married love is like. See, I know, I, I just, some of you are like, how did he know that? How, how did he, this is a human thing because it's not a bad thing, it's a good thing. However, what you need to recognize is that this heavenly domain is actually more advantageous and better. That Paul, who never got married, was like, this is it. This is truly what I'm after. And so it's recalibrating, even though these things in this earth are precious, like family. And you don't want, if you have kids, you know exactly what I mean. The last thing you want to do is just leave. And so 
I want to stay here and I want to cultivate my marriage and my family. I want to see my kids grow. It's a desire and it's a good desire. But there should be this competing dimension that then outweighs and grows brighter and larger, and that is Jesus. But he is even greater than that. And Lord, and I guarantee some of us in this last year and a half have sort of had thoughts. It's like, God, I wouldn't mind if you just brought me home. Because being in a world that has fallen to pieces isn't as fun as a world that's peaceful. And we have been in a world that feels like it's fallen to pieces. However, to the degree that you may long for your heavenly home, you also need to be to say, God, I want to be here as long as you desire me here. And as I'm here, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. The great secret of the martyrs, it's a strange phrase, and it's something that most of us really don't grasp or understand, and that is this phrase, taking it patiently. So how did you endure that? Well, I took it patiently? That doesn't help us. In the English language, we don't use that phrase. And so when it comes up in the Bible that we are to take it patiently, it doesn't necessarily resonate clearly, like, oh, I know exactly what to do now. Sort of like if the Bible said, die well, and we're like, okay, how do you do that? What does that mean? What does it mean to take it patiently? So let's unpack that a little. First Peter 2.20, when you do well and suffer for it, and you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. So you read through Fox's Book of Martyrs, and you're going to see this idea of patience, the patience of the martyrs. You're like, what? The patience of the martyrs? For us, patience is like, I've used this illustration many times, but like standing in front of the microwave as your popcorn is popping and not complaining, right? So it's, you don't get upset with your uh, microwave. It's like, crazy thing, you're taking forever. But you're willing to be patient. Okay, I'm willing to wait a minute and a half. I'm willing to do this. And that is a form of patience. That's a dimension of patience, which is the ability to go through a, a passage of time without breaking down and complaining. Sure. However, patience is something much bigger. It's much stronger. It's the ability of soul to hold it all together, to maintain poise in the midst of catastrophe. The ability for the soul to stay knit together and not crack, not fall to pieces, even when great pressures are upon the life. Every single one of us longs for it. Every single one of us, if you really were to break us down and you were to say, what is the number one thing you'd really like to have in your soul? And you had a whole bunch of things. It's sort of like if, if it's like some soldier movie where they set out a whole bunch of weapons, they say, pick one. Pick one for your soul. I really want patience. Because if you have patience, you can endure anything. You will never crack. You will never break. And guess what? This is something the Spirit of God desires to work in us. So the word is hupomeno, which, mean, which translates as to take it patiently. But listen to this translation, which might help you a little better. It's to take something or to absorb something or to endure something with brave calm and steadfast courage. Or I could say to approach death as James. To have your, rock, have your ship hit the rocks as those from by conduct and courage. Of course, that doesn't help us as much, right? And yet, I do know that uh, you all know how to die and that you will maintain your calm until the end. You see, when you start screaming, something's wrong. 
See, that's not what a Christian does. You see, because screaming usually has to do with fear, fright, anxiety, panic. Eh, no, that doesn't belong in a Christian's soul. We do not fear what is up ahead. In fact, we get a smirk on our face, on our soul, as we get near. So this is what it means, hupomeno, to remain unmoved, to not recede or flee, to stand fast amidst the most severe misfortunes and trials, and to hold fast one's faith in Christ to the end, to endure and bear the worst treatment bravely and calmly. So here's a few... Uh, showcasings of it. Mark 13, 13, and you shall be hated by all of all men for my name's sake. But he that shall endure, this is to take it patiently, hupomeno, unto the end, the same shall be saved. So I'm going to do an amplified version of that. Okay, so we're going to take the word endure and we're going to blow it up a little. And you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that shall show a brave calm and a steadfast courage, not draw back, not recoil, not be cowed by fear, but stand boldly unto the end, the same shall be saved. So that, when we unpack it, have you ever noticed it helps a little? It's like, okay, I can wrap my brain around that. But just enduring, hupomeno, what is, exactly is that? Romans 12, 12. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer. So we see this pattern for how we're supposed to be living. It doesn't always say, how we do that, even though it does in the book of Romans, not in this exact little uh, passage. We just know we're supposed to. We're supposed to be patient or have hupomeno in tribulation. So here's what that means. This is our expanded version. Rejoicing in hope, showing a brave calm and a steadfast courage, not drawing back, not recoiling, not being cowed by fear, but standing boldly in tribulation. So when you face tribulation, tribulation comes from the idea of the tribular, which is a threshing instrument. When you, when you face that difficulty upon your life, which is actually meant to better you, it's an agrarian technique, right, to not destroy corn, but to remove the husk from it, not to destroy wheat, but to remove the chaff from it. It's actually good for the, for the product, if you want to say it that way, but it doesn't always feel good. But if you will face that with the Christ attitude, ah, boy, guys, this is the way to reveal the kingdom. 1 Corinthians 13, 7. So this is in, you know, that, that peak climactic point of 1 Corinthians where we get to the love chapter, as many of us would call it. And love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and then has hupomeno in all things. And so you recognize when we start to get to this idea of hupomeno, it's not just for when you face death or when you face difficulty. This is something that we cultivate in all of life. So let's do the expanded version. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, shows a brave calm and a steadfast courage, does not draw back, does not recoil, nor is cowed by fear, but stands boldly, I forgot the in, in all things. That's, that's a picture of a Christian right there. That's a pretty exciting picture of a Christian. I, I mean, I, I want that. Following the example and facing death like Jesus. Dying like the man. 1 Peter 2, when you do well and suffer for it and you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. Listen to this. For to this you were called. Isn't that an interesting statement? You were called to do well and suffer for it and take it patiently. You were called to this. You were called to be as James 
and reveal the extraordinary courage and calm of soul and cheer of soul in the midst of a trial. You were called to that. However, most of us don't realize that, and so we don't do it. We think, oh, well, I'll, I'll do that when I'm like on death row, but I don't, I'm not going to do that now. That's a lot of work. When in actuality, this is what we were called to, to reveal heaven in and through this life, this body, when we face any difficulty. So for to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, dying like the man. So, of course, when you go into first century Christianity, you're going to see this more commonly than we see it today. You know, for us, death is it's very shocking, and I would say rightfully so. It is not a pleasant thing. It's the enemy that comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. It is, it is part of the aggravation that has taken place in our creation through sin. And it is, is a showing of the downfall, not of what God desires to accomplish. God came to bring life, and that more abundant. But we see it in the history. Stephen was stoned. Philip was crucified. Matthew was slain with the sword. James, the brother of Jesus, was stoned and clubbed. Matthias was stoned and beheaded. Mark was dragged to pieces. Jude was crucified. Bartholomew was cruelly beaten and then crucified. Thomas was thrust through with a spear. Luke was hung. Simon was crucified. And John was thrown into a cauldron of boiling oil and removed unscathed and then exiled to Patmos. Didn't know what to do with John. They throw him into a cauldron of boiling oil and he came out without even being scalded, without uh, even a hair being singed on his body. They're like, what do we do with this guy? And so they exiled him. And so even John basically was facing death. Every single one of the early apostolic martyrs, every single one of the early apostles is going to face death. And yet they are going to do it in such a surprising fashion that it's going to blossom the church. The church is going to explode because of how these men follow the example set by their Lord to stare death in the face and to do it with hupomeno, hupomone, hupomeno, which, which word, there's two words for patience, hupomeno, that's my word for today. They did it by taking it patiently, by having a brave calm and a steadfast courage. The last missionary trek of Stanley Dale and then I have a little sub-point under this, and the start of something amazing. You see, when you, whenever you, I could focus on this story as a downer story. It's like, yeah, and we lost a great man. I could. Or I could focus on what God is going to do out of this. It's sort of like the seed that has to fall into the ground and die so it can bring forth much fruit. And so I want us to always see both sides. I want us to feel the loss of Stanley Dale as a very real thing that God himself cares deeply about. The death of his saints is a big deal to God. But also to recognize the reason why we oftentimes will be spent. And the reason why, even though God is perfectly capable of sustaining our life, that he will allow our lives to be spent. It's because he wants to grow up life in others. And there's something about our willingness to enter into death with joy, with cheer, with extraordinary courage that actually prospers his kingdom in this world. 
So here's a quote from Stanley Dale himself. Yali Christians possess certain qualities that impressed me deeply, notably their strength of character as they face persecution and even death. It's just interesting that the man saying that is going to change the Yali people. So the Yali people, and this is just a, this is a review because some of you haven't been listening to the entire series, but the Yali people, considered by many of the missionaries at that time in Irinjaya, Papua New Guinea, would say that probably the most difficult subset of people maybe on earth to reach. They were one tough nut to crack with the gospel. They were so built to destroy and eradicate Christianity as opposed to embrace it. It's a hard assignment to get. And guess who's going to get this assignment? Stanley Dale. And Don Richardson, when he writes about him in Lords of the Earth, is basically going to say he might have been the only guy on earth that could have done what he did. Now, he's an unusual character. He's a little you know, rough around the edges. But what this tribe needed was they needed someone who was a little unusual and rough around the edges. And they got him in Stanley Dale. And that's encouraging. One of the reasons, because I remember when I was naming the, the series, and I said my, my proposed name, I'm saying this to Leslie, is daring to do is Stanley Dale. She says, are you sure you want to center it around Stanley Dale? I go, well, I'm not really going to center it around Stanley Dale. I just want him to be symbolic. But he has a lot of rough edges. That's like Leslie talking, right? And I go, oh, I know. That's why I'm, I'm picking him. Because I think he gives us, the average pedestrian-level Christian, a picture of how God can use people still with rough edges. And that's encouraging. Instead of thinking we need to be perfectly polished before we can be used to change the world. I like the thought that God can use even us. And he can use, an, use even Stanley Dale. So Yali Christians possess certain qualities that impressed me deeply. So when Stanley Dale, he's hard to impress, by the way, guys. Notably, their strength of character as they face persecution and even death. Now, in the previous one, I talked about the two first martyrs in these valleys were actually Yali Christians that he had led to the Lord. They were two of his, his sons in the faith. And it was a huge blow to Stan. And so then the next thing you know, he's going to go and retrieve their bodies from the very spot where they had been killed. And he's going to be shot through with five arrows. And the story is truly miraculous, even how he handles those arrows. He immediately yanks them out, breaks them. I mean, he just is an unstoppable character, right? And then he has to march for hours. He went 12 hours without food. He had to hike up the final thing as a 1,500-foot climb. And here he is. His insides are totally destroyed from these arrows. And these are like five-foot arrow shafts that go through his body. He yanks them out. His intestines are totally like destroyed, and he is like still walking. And the Yali people, who esteem this as well, right, they have no idea how to describe this guy. Is he a god? That's literally how they're concluding, because all it takes is one of these arrows, and most men fall. Most men die because of one arrow. He got five in him, and he walked out, hikes out, and survives, and then comes back. Who is this guy? Well, he is something very special. His name is Stanley Dale. So here's Don Richardson writing about this final visit to the, uh, the final trek. I'll just put it that way. Okay, so I'm going to try and fill in around the edges uh, because I'm skipping a lot. This is a big story, right? And I'm just trying to give some summary points. In nearly every village, they face the dark scowls of priests of Kembu. So Kembu is sort of these spirits, they're demons, 
but they control the villagers and the villagers have to appease the spirits. That's the only way they can survive. So they have all sorts of ridiculous rituals, but one of them is to appease the spirits, they're going to have to kill this guy named Stanley, okay? Because this guy, this Duong, is threatening everything. So in some places, shamans express their hatred for the gospel by erasing the footprints of its messengers from the ground around their villages. They even urge their followers not to accept foreign salt, knives, and other tr goods in trade from Stan and his helpers. If you accept the Duong's hardware, you will also accept their ideas, they warned. Some of the priests at one point sent word to Stan that if he would express regret for the burning of the fetishes and tell the Christians not to destroy any more, they would allow him to travel freely through all their valleys. It's a, it's a, it's a fair thing. The, you know, the, the priests of Kenbu are like, you know what, if you would express regret that this was all a mistake, because he has led people to the Lord, and those people have taken their idols, their fetishes, the things that they believe sort of keep the, the evil away from them and keep their health, they have said, I find my life and my satisfaction and my salvation in Jesus Christ alone. I don't turn to any of these. So they burned them publicly. Stan didn't even ask them to do certain, he, he did ask them to burn their fetishes. I, I, I'm going to acknowledge that. But what he didn't know is that these fetishes oftentimes belong to a whole group of men. So these guys went in and took fetishes that belonged to nine other guys who weren't Christians and then they burned them. So you could just imagine the tension that is being created here. And so for conscience sake, these guys feel like they need to burn their fetishes, but that belonged to nine other men, and that was their protection. And now this Christian over here just burned their protection. So you can just imagine some of the tension. This is spreading like wildfire throughout all the Yali people, and they're given their warning. You know, hey, if you repent of what you have led our people to do, we'll let you travel freely. If not, we will kill you. Stan's response, this is classic Stanley Dale. If you haven't picked up on Stanley Dale, this definitely fits it. This is a good summary. Stan's response, though the followers of Kembu may kill us, they must be shown that they cannot cow us or cause us to budge one inch from our stand for truth and righteousness or make us cease for one moment from denouncing the evil of their fetish system. Let them do what they will. I shall not purchase immunity for myself at the cost of expressing regret for initiating the fetish burning. I have no regret at all. It was one of the best things I ever did in my life. <laughs> yeah, Stanley Dale. So Don Richardson continues, Yali shamans in the southern helic, recalling that Stan had twice trekked eastward into the Sang Valley and beyond, sent word to fellow shamans in that area. The green-eyed Duong. So in different parts of uh, Papua New Guinea, they call them Tuons. If you've ever, ever heard Otto Konin speak, he always talks about the, the Tuons. So they, they, don't say, they say it just a little differently, Duongs. So the green-eyed Duong must die. That's Stan Dale. He has stopped coming to our villages since we wounded him. We are hesitant to attack him in his own area for the number of his friends there increases steadily and may be greater than we think. Perhaps later he will, he will trek into your valley. If he does, do not fail to kill him. But remember this. This is, a, this is really fun. I love this statement. This is their thinking. What's amazing about this is since they all became Christians, Don Richardson was able to come in and interview them on exactly what was happening, what they were thinking. And so we actually have like the behind the scenes uh, that was going on. It's really fun. But remember this. He has an uncanny ability to recover from even the deadliest wounds. Do not think that just a few arrows will kill him. You will have to use as many arrows as there are reeds in a swamp, or he will get up and walk away. 
Shamans in the Seng understood the message clearly, and they began to watch the trails waiting for the day Stan might return. Uh-oh, can you sort of feel it? It's like if this is a movie, you know, this is some darker music that's starting to creep in. The Korupun roots. So he was trying to figure out how to explore the valleys because he recognizes that they're trying to cow him, and yet he came to this valley to reach the unreached. And there's a whole bunch of valleys that are still yet unexplored. But to get to those valleys, he has to choose because there's all sorts of death threats that he has. And he does not want to die uh, for lack of a reason. Okay, He, he doesn't want to just uh, give up his life unwisely. He wants to be spent for God's purposes. So he's trying to apply wisdom. And so he has two different routes that go over the mountains, but they both go through very hazardous territory of men that are decidedly against him. And, but he wants to reach these valleys that have never been touched with the gospel. So he, 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 he flies into Korapun, which is on the other side of the ranges, and asks Phil Masters if he will go in with him. Because Phil Masters is working uh, over in the Korapun region and wants, and wants to explore those valleys too. And so he joins with, with uh, Phil Masters from the other side. So recruiting Phil Masters for the trek. And I haven't spent a lot of time on Phil Masters. It's funny because Phil Masters is one of the most likable guys you'd ever study. So he would, it would make a lot more sense in some regards to say daring to do is Phil Masters uh, because he's much more of a pleasant character. He's like the golden retriever that's wagging his tail when you see him. And no one could ever harm Phil Masters. He's just a big glob of love and kindness, right? And so you match these two together and you have Phil Masters and Stanley Dale hiking in. It's just a great mental picture for me. So Don Richardson continues. The date for the new venture, mid-September 1968. As the date drew near, Yemu, Stan called. Yemu was one of the men Stan baptized nearly two years earlier. How would you like to join Phil Masters and me for a long journey? Yemu smiled. Where do you intend to go? We'll fly to Korapun, Stan replied, and from there trek this way to the Solo and Sang Valleys. See, that, that means something to the Yali. They're like, whoa. You can help us teach the gospel to people in those valleys, and we want to measure sites for new airstrips. Yemu's smile changed to a frown. I want to help you teach the gospel, my father, but I do not think you should go as far as the Sang Valley. The people there have close ties with those who wounded you. Now it was Stan who frowned. The southern Helic Valley had, people had restricted his movements long enough. It was time for the gospel to break forth to the east in spite of them as it had to the west. He who keeps too close of an eye on the weather, a missionary named John Stan once wrote, will never harvest a crop. Don Richardson continues. If you are afraid to go with us, Yemu, Stan, Stan replied, I'll find someone else. Yemu squared his shoulders and in a spirit typical of nearly all of Stan's converts said, if you are determined to go, I'll go with you. You see, these people were born spiritually from Standale's ministry. And every single one of them is like this. They'll give a warning, just like any human would. It's like, that doesn't sound wise. We could die doing that. And then Stan says, well, if you don't want to go, I'll find someone else. No, I want to go. <laughs> Don Richardson says, after eating a cheerful lunch together, this is in Korapun, so I'm skipping a lot, but they're with the, the master's family. And Pat Dale and, and the other kids, Stan's kids, came over and they're with the masters and they're going to stay with the masters while Stan and uh, Phil go on this trek. After eating a cheerful lunch together, the two families joined hands and saying, what a friend we have in Jesus. Kissing their wives and children, Stan and Phil shouldered their packs and prepared their carrier for the trip. Phyllis and Pat, the two, mo two mothers, the two wives, watched from a kitchen window as Phil, Stan, and their four helpers climbed a ridge and disappeared beyond the horizon. 
boldly entering the Wickboon Bowl. So these guys are going to go into territory that it's just not wise to go into. For all practical purposes, just stay out of this area, Stan. But they're looking for an airstrip. I mean, we need to find an airstrip. It's right through here. I don't fear those people. I don't fear death. He, he doesn't. He does not fear death. He has proven it time and again that God sustains him. So Phil Masters could feel danger thickening as they pushed further into the unexplored upper reaches of the Seng. Only Stan seemed totally at ease. Finally, an attack came. At a place called Fumahu, the gorge widened into a small side valley. Seeing their chance, the pursuers swarmed on the uphill side and came down with arrows drawn. They're going to kill us, Yemu warned. Phil laid a hand on Yemu's shoulder and said, don't be afraid, God is with us. You're just like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, comforting his followers. Yemu smiled back at him, encouraged by Phil's composure. So in multiple times, Stan is going to actually take out firecrackers. They don't want to take actual weapons with them. The last thing they want to do is darken the perspective of the Yali against future missionaries to come in. So even if they die, they don't want to die taking people out. They want to die lovingly. And this is a, a challenge because when you have hostility coming against you, it's sort of difficult not to defend yourself. So Stan has a secret, and that is firecrackers. So if there's ever an extreme situation, he's already used them once on this, this trek, right? The night before, he used them and scared off all the guys, but they realized no one died from it. So it, it can only last so long uh, that you do it. These, these people are smart, and they figure things out. So Stan opened his pack and produced three more firecrackers and a box of dry matches. As warriors came on shouting, Stan lit firecrackers one by one and lofted them into the air above the war party. By the time the third firecracker, firecracker exploded, Tio's attack was dissolving into panicky flight. Just how many more times will it work? Phil wondered as the party used the time thus purchased to hurry on across another cliff face where further attack would be impossible. First of all, he's going to run out of firecrackers, and second of all, they can't work forever. An hour later, the mission party emerged from the gorge and looked down into an open bowl-shaped arena called Wickboon. At least 10 Yali hamlets beetled along the crest of ridges above the bowl. Yemu chewed his lips, asking himself, will they let us through? So they've survived. You know, it, it, once again, it just proves that Stan is, he has a supernatural covering over his life. I mean, even if I, if I read in detail what they went through, it's like, once again, you have to admit, okay, Stan, you're bold, you're courageous, and no one can ever touch you. You just keep walking through. And yet you can feel it in, in the, when you're even reading it. You feel sort of this darkness smothering uh, in the situation. So at the signal of death, what is our response? You know, there is a, a time, in, if you study Vox's Book of Martyrs, where it's very clear to the believer that their time has come. Their hour has come. And multiple times in Scripture, Jesus knew it was his hour, right? Paul, Peter, they both seemed to know historically that it was their hour, that their race had come to an end, which I think is fascinating, you know, that they have that, that conviction or that, that sense of confidence. The question is, when you get the signal that your time has come, what's your response? Now, in this situation, there's actually going to be a signal given in this valley from one of the leaders, and I'm going to read it for you, and it happens right in front of Stan, and the Yali next to Stan interprets it and says to Stan exactly what was just stated. So Don Richardson says it this way. Nalimo greeted him in Yali and blew a puff of tobacco smoke sideways. Uh-oh, we have the signal. 
Suddenly, all the Yali gathering around grew tense and remembered the warning they got from the southern helic many months earlier. If duongs come to your valley, it will be to place a curse upon your homes and gardens and pigs and eventually destroy the sacred objects in your kembu valms. There is only one thing to do with them, shoot to kill. To the three Dani carers, the blowing of a puff of smoke out the side of one's mouth meant nothing. But Yemu, a Yali himself, understood its significance. A sign has been given, Yemu said in the Dani language. We are to be killed. We must try to leave this place. So, well, let me go back to, uh, we, we, we must try to leave this place. What do you think Stan says? Oh, no. No, we're fine. Okay, he just does not fear death. In fact, some people, his critics have oftentimes said that he had a death wish on his life. I don't know if there's any evidence of that, but when someone lives this way, you can interpret it that way. Sort of like, I want to die. No, he doesn't want to die. He just is not afraid of dying. When are we going to kill them? Someone asked. Send word to all our Wickboon villages, Nalimo replied. We'll mass during the night and kill them first thing in the morning. An old man named Mongol pointed his sharp walking stick at Nalimo, croaking. Do you understand these strange things, young man? No. You don't know what you are doing. Who knows what unknown troubles you may bring upon us all if you kill them. This is too mysterious for us. Let them go on their way unharmed. But the younger advocates of Kembu smiled sarcastically and turned away from Mongul. At Kibi, directly across the Sang River from Nilimo's village, a venerable Yali elder named Kusaho pleaded eloquently for the travelers' lives. When our friends from the Helic thought they had killed one of these men, he got to his feet and walked away. He is protected by powerful spirits. Let us not tempt these beings and their spirits to anger. You are all talking like old women, the young men replied. The Helic people failed to kill him, but we will do a thorough job. Wait and see. Together they advanced up valley and surrounded Stan and Phil. Obviously, I'm skipping uh, time, right? As they were breaking camp, Nalimo prepared a signal. When I greet the shorter Duong, that's Stan, and lay my hand on his chest, you shoot arrows suddenly into his back. Minutes later, Nalimo found Stan packing by himself. Nare, he called. That's a greeting. Drawing Stan's attention while other warriors sidled around behind him. Nare. Stan replied cheerfully, glad for a friendly word from people who had been so surly the day before. Nalimo laid his hand on Stan's chest. Stan, in turn, laid his hand on Nalimo's shoulder and gazed innocently into the warrior's eyes. Nalimo saw the would-be killers behind Stan flex their bows, then turn away uncertainly. Nalimo, likewise, turned away. They couldn't do it. It was the strangest thing. It's like Stan's just standing totally vulnerable. No weapons, no defense, and they can't shoot him. Later, he scolded his friends. What was the matter with you? Why didn't you shoot as we agreed? We don't know, they replied lamely. <laughs> I love that description, lamely. <laughs> Somehow it didn't seem to be the right moment. It's just as well, Nalimo said. If we had killed them earlier, their spirits would have been released near our homes, becoming more dangerous to, to us dead than they are alive. We'll wait until they are deep in the forest. Then their spirits will not find their way back to our gardens and villages. There was more truth in Nalimo's words than he guessed. Some men's influence does grow stronger through death. Taking it patiently in the Wickboon Bowl. So now they're along a beach, a pebble beach, and they're going to be surrounded. And this is the place of Stan and Phil's death. And it's this little passage we're about to walk through is very, very precious to me. It, it's like a, 
a mental picture that I've held on to for years of my life that I return to often. And sometimes when you read a Christian biography, that happens. You can forget most of the biography, but there's like these moments, these pictures, these, these evidences of the power of God working in and through men that we need as modern believers to understand and recognize our God, the God of 2,000 years ago, you know the one that came to the cross, died, rose again, and then ascended? That same God lives today and evidences himself and does exploits in his people. A great war cry resounded somewhere in the forest behind them and Yemu's heart sank. This is it, he thought. Hurry, my father, Yemu pleaded. I fear they will kill you now. No, Yemu. I'll stay behind. You go on ahead and help Phil make good time. Stan replied calmly. He knows, Yemu thought. He heard that shout too, and he knows that this time they really mean to kill. But Yemu stayed with Stan. The three Donnies had gone ahead with Phil. Suddenly they came floundering through the rivers, bows held high. Others streamed down through the forest, their floppy rattan coils rattling. Stan and Yemu stood at the lower end of the gravel beach facing them. Phil was alone at the other end, 50 yards distant. The three Donnies waited another 30 yards beyond Phil. As they all looked back in horror, they saw Stan raise his staff, grimly facing the Wickboon horde. Yemu, leave me, he shouted over his shoulder. He kept his staff raised, not to strike, but to form a barrier against the advancing tide of warriors. All of you, turn around and go home, he commanded. A priest of Kembu named Barraway slipped around behind Stan and at point-blank range shot an arrow in under his upraised right arm. Another priest, Bunu, shot a bamboo-bladed shaft into Stan's back just below his right shoulder. Yemu was crying now and shouting at them to stop. As the arrows entered his flesh, Stan pulled them out one by one, broke them, and cast them away. Dozens of them were coming at him from all directions. He kept pulling them out, breaking them and dropping them at his feet until he could not keep ahead of them. Nalimo reached the scene after some 30 arrows had found their mark in Stan's body. How can he stand there so long, Nalimo gasped. Why doesn't he fall? Any one of us would have fallen long ago. A different kind of shaft pierced Nalimo's own flesh, fear. Perhaps he is immortal. Nalimo's normally impassive face melted with sudden emotion. Because of that emotion, Nalimo said later he did not shoot an arrow into Stan's body. Stan faced his enemies, steady, and unwavering except for the jolt of each new strike. Yemu ran to where, Stan stood, where Phil stood alone. Together they watched in anguish at Stan's agony as some 50 or more warriors detached from the main force and came toward them. Phil pushed Yemu behind him and gestured speechlessly, run. Phil seemed hardly to notice the warriors encircling him. His eyes were fixed upon Stan, 50 arrows, 60. Red ribbons of blood trailed from the many wounds. But still, Stan stood his ground. Nalimo saw that he was not alone in his fear. Nalimo is the guy attacking. The attack had begun with hilarity, but now the warriors shot their arrows with desperation, bordering on panic because Stan refused to fall. Perhaps Kusaho was right. Perhaps they were committing a monstrous crime against the supernatural world instead of defending it, as they intended. Fall! They screamed at Stan. Die! It was almost a plea. Please die! 
Yemo did not hear Phil say anything to the warriors as they aimed their arrows at him. Phil made no, no attempt to flee or struggle. He had faced danger many times, but never certain death. But Stan had shown him how to face it. If he needed an example. That example could hardly... <laughs> Sorry, guys, this is really important uh, to me, this scene. That example could hardly have been followed with greater courage. Once again, it was Barraway who shot the first arrow, and it took almost as many arrows to down Phil as it had Stan. Guys, what is the value of this if we don't know how to take this? There is a reason why we have insight into that scene. There's a lot of scenes in history that we can't witness with that type of clarity. Phil Masters, who's of a very different makeup than Stanley Dale. Stanley Dale, this like fits him in every regard. But Phil is the golden retriever, wagging his tail even at the last. But he is going to witness something. He is going to witness how Stan dies. And he's going to understand how to die himself. So few of us have ever witnessed that sort of strength. And as a result, because we live in a generation without that evidence right in front of us that Phil is going to have just before he dies with Stan, and so many stories in history when the young Christian believers are in the prison and they're being told they're going to be fed to lions, the older ones will say, I will go first. Watch me and you will understand how to follow. And they go out worshiping. And it so trains the soul of the younger ones that they are then eager to go to. We have not witnessed this in our generation. And as a result, we feel vulnerable to death as opposed to bold in it. Dying today. Cultivating the brave, calm, and steadfast courage in everyday life. So one of the statements I've been saying to myself over the last 24 hours since I landed on this title of Daring to Die as Stanley Dale is, Lord, I want to live as Stanley Dale died. How he died, I want to live. And of course I want to die that way too, yes. But I want to live that way now. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it die, it brings forth much fruit. As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So I asked this. This is from my last message where I was talking about quivers being full. Remember I said, how many arrows fits in a quiver? And it's, well, when you can't fit any more in. And then I asked this as a follow-up question. How many arrows can you take? As many as are shot at you. That's our confidence in death. It doesn't matter what form of death they envision to try and break us. We have grace for it. We can die well no matter what they try and do to us. We can endure whatever challenges are up ahead, and that is the confidence we can have as believers. Above all, take in the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. You have grace for whatever flies your way. If you live, you show the triumph of the gospel, and if you die, you show the triumph of the gospel. In 2 Corinthians 12, this is what we shared on, uh, I think it was Monday, a bamboo-tipped arrow 
in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. Now, by the way, for those of you that are getting this podcast, that's my adaptation for the Yali people. My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You shoot an arrow in me, and I have grace for it. That's the statement. It doesn't matter what thorn comes into this body. I have grace that is sufficient to match the challenge. Nothing shall by any means hurt you. Imagine God whispering that to Stan in the middle of the Wickboon Bowl as arrows, 60 arrows are inside of his body. Nothing shall by any means hurt you, Stan. You belong to me. You see, there's a part of Stan that those arrows cannot touch, cannot stop. And that is what you need to know. That part, that eternal part, that part that has everlasting life, can stare death in the face and laugh because you can't kill that. It doesn't matter how many arrows you shoot. This is only the beginning. This is only a thoroughfare into something even greater for me. To live is Christ, but to die is gain. Greeting death as a man, applying Yoda wisdom. You guys ready to know what Yoda wisdom is? Some of you lingered around just for this. Yanking out the arrows. <laughs> when the arrows come against your soul, you yank them out and break them over your knee. It doesn't matter what it is. You yank them out, break them over the knee, and scare the enemy. Let him know that you do not tremble before his greatest efforts. His greatest strength is to supply death as his weapon. Fear is what he motivates his people with. We are not cowed by the enemy's tactics. You yank out the arrows and you break them over your knee. And if they keep coming, you yank them out, you break them over your knee. Some of you have challenges. You have arrows being sent at you right now. Yank them out, break them over the knee, and let the enemy tremble. I belong to Jesus. You got anything else in that quiver of yours? Because it only makes me stronger. Here's a, here's a quote for us. Death, I will not fear you. I will not be cowed by you. I will not tremble before your snarling specter, for you are but a doorway into something even greater than this life here. In you I find the vestibule of heaven and the dear presence of my beloved Jesus. And just as we finished with every other uh, Stanley Dale message in this series, the missionary motto of Stanley Dale, going enthusiastically, sharing courageously, serving sacrificially, suffering joyfully, dying triumphantly. Father, oh, we want that. We want to yank out the arrows. Lord, we want to stare this specter in the face and say, our God has triumphed over you. Our God has defeated you, and we will not be cowed. Lord, may this be the cry of our souls as we face the challenges that in our lives that are just there. Lord, we love you, and we cherish your triumph. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we ask this. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. 
Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellersley.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.